We are uh, in the book of Mark, so sorry, if you uh, have a Bible, open up to Mark 12. Uh, if you've been following with us, you'll know we've been in Mark for a while, and we'll be there till Easter. Uh, if you haven't been following, uh, we're, likewise, he said, we're going to do one week of Mark today, uh, partly because this passage in Mark is a really great passage to start your year off on. And so that's why we're doing one of these, and then we're doing four weeks where we're going to gather together, and it'll be a... It's very helpful four weeks uh, to put in rhythms for our lives on how we can grow closer to God for the next year and years, individually and as a church. Um, so that's basically what it is. It's bringing together a lot of the, the core deep values of our church and rhythms that we want to put into our lives as individuals and collectively. So it's going to be, especially if you're newish to Parkhurst, or even if you've been around for a while, I think the next four weeks will be very clarifying and, and uh, very helpful, very practical stuff. But this morning we're in Mark 12. Uh, we're going to be looking from uh, <clears throat> verse 20, uh, 28 onwards. Um, before we get to Mark, I always, I love at the beginning of the year to just check, um, do some market research on, on uh, the New Year's resolutions. Uh, how many new vegans <clears throat> do we have in the, in the house? Okay, there's one. Um, any new CrossFitters? Normally they would have told you that already if they had taken up CrossFit in Jan. Uh, crypto traders? No, ex-Facebookers, I'm sure there's some ex-Facebookers uh, out there, some new Instagrammers, I'm sure we're going to get some new Instagram invites, um, anyone taking up yoga, journaling, started reading your Bible, <laughs> again in Genesis, yeah, I've been here before, here we go, <laughs> Genesis for the 10th time, how many church, who's committed to drinking more water, okay, learning Zulu, there's got to be somebody who's committed to learning Zulu, Anyone join the 5 a.m. club? Yeah, that's a, that's a lame club to join. I'm telling you that much, okay. If uh, right at the start of 2022, if you could ask Jesus one question, what would you ask him? If you had a shot to ask him one question, you had access to ask him a question, what would you ask him? Uh, you know, we talk about this quite a bit at our house. You, know, you could ask a question of Jesus, and it ranges everything from... Um, did Adam and Eve have belly buttons? Uh, to uh, did you really name all the stars? Do they like all only each have their own name? Uh, like that's quite a thing if you think about it. Uh, that's what the Bible says. Um, why did you make mosquitoes? That's my number one question, actually. Uh, not far behind that is which way round does the USB drive actually go? into the computer, like um, only Jesus, I think, can solve that for us, but, and a million other questions, but if you could ask him one, what would it be, and as we dive into this text this morning, we see an encounter, an interaction that Jesus has with a religious leader, a scribe, where he gets, he gets a shot to ask Jesus one question, and it's a very important question, and Jesus' answer is possibly one of the most important things that you're going to hear Jesus teach on in the Gospel of Mark, and so this is like I said, a great passage for us to dive into at the start of a new year. So let's read together from Mark uh, chapter 12, uh, from verse 28 to 34. One of the scribes approached when he heard them <clears throat> debating and saw that Jesus answered them well. He asked him, which command is the most important of all? Jesus answered, the most important is, listen, Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. 
Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. The second is love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. Then the scribe said to him, You are right, teacher. You have correctly said that he is one, and there is no one else except him. And to love him with all your heart and with all your understanding and with all your strength and to love your neighbor as yourself is far more important than all the burnt offerings and sacrifices. When Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. And no one dared to question him any longer. Let's pray together. Father, at the at the start of a new year as a church family, we again thank you for the gift of your word. And a week by week, as is um, our rhythm, we come um, to pause and to ask and to plead with you that you would, in fresh ways, send the Holy Spirit amongst us to teach us, to open up our eyes, to reveal you to us, to reveal your heart, your character, your nature to reveal our own hearts to us, to wash the truths of the gospel over us again this morning, that we would love you more, we would be shaped by your word this morning, that we would be more conformed to the person and the likeness of Jesus Christ, all because of what you do through your word. And so we, we come humbly before you, we place ourselves under your word again, and we look to you with great hope and faith and expectation and say, Father, would you please speak? Your words are the ones we long for the most, and we pray that now you would shape and speak to us as a church, family, as a people, that you would do us so much good through your word. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. I think we've all become uh, pretty aware that life is, life is complicated. Um, there are so many moving parts to life. Uh, life is complex and uh, complicated, and a good, we're all sort of scrambling at different places and stages to how, how do we make sense of life? How do we make sense of your own life and what you're going through, and how do we make sense of everything you see going on around you? Uh, and this is not just some like teenage existential kind of uh, crisis. I think it's something we live with as humans, and as we walk through, if we're honest with each, uh, honest with ourselves, I think you can just run headlong through life and just a million miles an hour and not ask any of these important questions, but that is not a life well lived, I don't think. Um, many of us, if we're honest enough, we slow down enough, we're asking these questions of how do we really make sense of life, and uh, on occasions we get to these, these patches of clarity where things become abundantly clear, things become simple and clear. And what we're going to see in what Jesus teaches this morning is one of these moments where uh, in the midst of all the complexity of life and our questions of how do we navigate life, and particularly for us who are followers of Jesus, if you're a Christian, how do you live the Christian life? How do you, how do, you do this? Not how do you be a good Christian, but how do you be a Christian? How, how do you navigate life as a follower of Jesus, wanting to be faithful to following him? How do you, how do, you do this? And so... Um, I think this answer that we're going to dive into this morning is um, fundamentally important. Let's start with the question that this scribe uh, asks. Um, he comes to Jesus 
you remember, maybe back from earlier in Mark, Jesus is always getting peppered with questions. The religious leaders are always trying to trick him or trap him. They're asking him these curveball kind of uh, questions to get him to trap himself with his own words or to get him into trouble with the authorities or whatever. This is slightly different. Uh, the account that we have, in, at least in Mark here, presents the scribe as more of an honest inquirer. He's sort of coming, really kind of asking the question, and it does seem like it's an honest inquiry. We don't know his heart motivation, but it doesn't seem like he's trying to trap Jesus. It's a genuine question. What is the most important commandment? Now, it's helpful to have some context of why he's asking this question. Remember, we all come to Jesus from different places and with different questions and different um, uh, backgrounds, uh, views, heart, makeups, desires, sins, all of that. This guy, he's coming. He's a scribe. So the scribes were uh, one of the sort of the religious groupings, parties. And basically to describe them, they um, took really, really uh, importantly uh, the Mosaic law, its breakdown and its application. So they had, they had um, devised a system of 613 individual commandments that you had to obey um, under the Mosaic law. 613 of them, 365 of them were negative ones. You shall not, do not, you know, fra phrased in the negative. Don't do those things. The other 248 were positives. You shall, you must, you must do kind of thing. But in total, 613, then they took that 613 and then they gave them a grading, like a weighting, like some are more important than others. So even within their own system, they had like first team commandments and, you know, the F team commandments kind of thing, if you want. Like, um, and, and so obviously he paid different attention to this. So he comes with this question with all these 613 commandments and he asked Jesus, hey, Jesus, and he would have known all of this. Out of all of these commandments, which is the one that... You know, which is the most important? We want to help us with our grading system. Have we got it right? Jesus answers brilliantly. And he winds them back. If you're taking notes, Deuteronomy chapter 6, we'll look at it uh, in a second. But um, one thing that Jesus does here, which I love, is that he anticipates a future generation like us where Twitter would come about, and you had to give an answer to that question in 280 characters or less. And Jesus nails it. I actually even did this. I'm a bit obsessive. I did the, I, ch I checked it, and it's under 280 characters. You can tweet this whole answer of Jesus, and it'll go in one tweet kind of thing. I mean, I miss the days of 140 characters. Um, I mourn for the days when Twitter was 140 characters, and people couldn't sprout on for twice as long. Uh, but maybe that's, just, uh, maybe that's just me. This is like essential Christianity. This is like Christianity for dummies what Jesus is giving here. Like if you want to distill, what does it mean to follow Jesus to its purest form? Essentialism. Jesus is about to give the answer because this guy's asked his one question, what's the most important commandment here is it? This is at the heart of what it means to be a Jesus follower. Jesus says the most important is listen. Your translation, you may have heard this, hear, hear, O Israel. The CSP puts it, listen, same thing. Listen, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind and all your strength. And Jesus then, unasked, gives them the second. Remember, you only asked him, what's the one most important? Jesus bundles them together. And we're going to look at this. We're going to unpack it a bit. He says, these two go together. 
They go together. It is the second, but you'll see, in a, you'll see in a moment that the second can't exist without the first. And the second proves the first, actually. It says, the second is love your neighbor as yourself. There's no commandment greater than these. Jesus is quoting, that first part he's quoting directly from Deuteronomy chapter 6. The second part he's quoting from Leviticus 19. That, that bit of love your neighbor is actually a random verse. If you go and read Leviticus 19, it's a whole string of other random commandments. It's almost just pulled out of there. It's almost lurking and hiding, um, hiding there. And Jesus pulls it out, squishes these two things together, makes one new commandment for them, and distills Christianity into 280 characters or less. Four things I want us to notice this morning about what Jesus answers in this command. The first is that it's grounded in who God is. It's grounded in who God is. What is he? He starts with something you may, you may have Jewish friends who, who, and you may have heard them saying this, Hero Israel, the Lord is. It's called the Shema. It's something that any good Jewish person would recite at least twice a day and many other times when they came to prayer. It was just, it was part of their um, identity as Jewish people. They would just recite this to remind them of who they were in relation to God. Let's have, let's have a look at it. It says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord, our God. Not the Lord, my God. The Lord, our God. The first thing that they wanted to remind themselves of as a people is that they were a people. They were a people collectively under God. He was the one who made a covenant with a group of people and called them to be his people. They didn't pick him. He picked them. They were his. He was their God collectively together. And day after day, multiple times a day, they remind themselves of their identity as the beloved chosen people of God. Let me just pause there quickly. You could do a lot worse than this year getting into some kind of rhythm where you say something to yourself twice a day that reminds you of your identity as a chosen child of God. Find a phrase, a verse, a rhythm. You repeat it to yourself a couple times a day that drills into your head your identity as a chosen, beloved child of God. Because a million other things will lie to you hour by hour, day by day, that that's not true. And that your identity is found in many other things. And this, this Shema had shaped a people over many, many years. That's the first thing. Our God is a covenant people. Then it says the Lord is one. The Lord is one. This means two different things. It means that there is no one like the Lord. There's no one like him. If you have a look down, if you have a Bible, look down in verse 32. When the scribe, when the scribe answers back to Jesus' answer, uh, he says, you're right, teacher. You've correctly said that he is one and there is no one else except him. So he's agreeing. He says, there they are, Jesus, when you say he's one, there is, there's one and only. There is one God and he's our God. He's not a God amongst the gods. There is one God. It's not a smorgasbord. There's not a buffet table you get to pick and choose. There is only one living God, and he's the God of the covenant people, Israel. The Lord is one. The Lord is one as well in a Trinitarian sense. We don't have time, it's not the focus of this morning to talk about this, but God is, uh, is three in one. Father, Son, and Spirit together, God eternally coexistent, um, loving Godhead. And if, later in the year, we'll explore a bit more about 
what the Trinity is, because I think many of us give, give less attention to the Trinity than we should, to our detriment. But this is what they reminded themselves of every day, a couple of times. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Then he moves on. What's the second thing? second thing is that he puts love at the center. He puts love at the center of the command. He doesn't say, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Fear the Lord. He doesn't say, obey the Lord. He says, love the Lord, your God. Love the Lord. Love is at the basis. It's the foundation. It's the center. It's the top. I don't know what. How else do you describe that it's the most important thing? It's the thing that makes everything else make sense. It's a love for God. And this, in some ways, positions Christianity different from other religions and other worldviews. Um, other religions, I, would, I think, would put more like submission at the, at the, at the center. You, you, you obey, you submit um, this deity and who asks you to do a whole bunch of things. Or um, I think Buddhism is an example. We had friends who were missionaries in Thailand. We made a couple of trips out there. We got to understand a little bit about Buddhism Digging in and like basically, I know this is maybe an oversummary, but Buddhism, the journey is to like head towards like nothingness. Like try and eliminate all desire and just be like, I don't know if it's Zen or the, I don't want to misquote, get the right, but like eliminate all desire and basically be like a nothing kind of thing. Like just, and you have to go through incarnations until you get that right kind of thing. Um, and so that, that, is, that is at the heart, is like the elimination of all those desires. And that's very different to putting love for God at the center, a love for God at the center. Think of the Ten Commandments that Jesus is summarizing here. Some of you might be thinking, well, why didn't Jesus just say, hey, but you know the Ten Commandments, all of them, none of them get like uh, moved out the way. You know, I'm not discounting the Ten Commandments. Basically what Jesus is doing, he is summarizing the Ten Commandments in two and grouping the first four commandments in the love of the Lord your God with your hearts on mind and strength and the last six commandments in love thy neighbor. Because the first four commandments have to do with our relationship with God, and the last six have to do with our relationship with people around us. So both those four and those six, they come together in these two. He's summarizing and distilling them. But Moses, the Ten Commandments actually phrased fairly negatively. You shall not, do not, don't. Uh, and later on in Deuteronomy, Moses phrases it more positively here, which Jesus is quoting, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And I, I, want, I want us to draw this into our heads and our hearts right at the start of a new year. Religion has to do with what we do. All the good that we pile up, all the good things we do, how many times we come to church, how nice we are to the people at church, how faithfully you stick to your Bible reading plan, how much you give, how much you do, 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 fast, pray, yada, yada, yada. Remember, if we think we are uh, spiritual and religious, you need to contrast yourself with the guys, <clears throat> the scribes there, who jumped through way more religious hoops than we did. They did way more good, you know, kind of fast twice a week, you know, that, that prayer of Pharisee, like that religiosity, they, are, they outshine us completely. But if that's the path of religion that you want to go down. But there's nothing at the end of that path. Religion isn't about what you. Religion is about what you do. Jesus following is about who you love. It starts by who you are loved by, and then who you love in return. Love comes to the center. 
And what Jesus is teaching here is new, but in some ways it's not new. It's new in the way that Jesus always tweaks and adds to and clarifies and modifies commandments, but love for God and the priority of love for God it has its roots in the Old Testament. We could do multiple sermons on this. Let me just take you to one passage in Hosea, because it has the same phrasing that's used in this passage. Um, in this prophecy in Hosea chapter 6, this is what God is saying to the people who are trying again to come back to Him. They're trying again to sort their lives out. Maybe that's you at the start of a new year. You're like, let me go. This is my year. This is my year. I'm going to go to church. I'm going to read my Bible. I'm going to pray. I'm, seven, I'm nine days in. I'm going strong. And you've recommitted yourself to spiritual discipline, practice, whatever else. And I'm not saying necessarily all of those things are bad. We'll, we'll talk about that a bit later. I'm not saying those things are bad. But the, the self-effort, self-help um, gospel doesn't have much legs on it to run very far. Uh, because the people of God have tried that for millennia. And they often get wrong. Because it's not about outward things. It's about an inward heart change that we need. And listen to what God says to his people in Hosea chapter 6. I'll just I'll dive into it at verse 4. He says, what am I going to do with you, Ephraim? What am I going to do with you, Judah? These are names for his people, um, Israel. Your love is like the morning mist and like the early dew that vanishes. When we, we know a Joburg weather, well, I mean, we used to know what Joburg weather was like. Apparently, uh, it's changed. It's now, we basically live in England. Um, <clears throat> but in Cape Town, we, we don't know the weather too well. We obviously go in there only on holiday. And Cape Town, where we stay in, near the coast in Bloberg, it's got this weird weather that rolls in every now and then. Apparently, the locals tell us it's like this west wind. They're down there, they all talk about what, which direction the wind's blowing from, like how it affects the mountain and what they need. Anyway, I can now confidently tell you that the west wind, my China's, it brings in something off the ocean that causes the whole place to be like a haze. It's terrible. You wake up thinking, we're going to club the beach, and you can't see the trees like in the garden. It's like, what's going on here? But if you just wait like a couple of hours, it's gone. And then off to the beach you can go when all the Cape Townians have eventually woken up. Then they're all off to the beach there. Uh, and the haze, the mist is history. That for me, I read this, I was like, that's exactly what it's like. It's, and, and God says, your love is like the morning mist. Yeah! <laughs> bit of sun, bit of wind, history. It's there and then it's gone. It's like the morning dew. It was there and then it was gone. And I think we can all identify with that where we're like, I love you, God. I'm yours forever. This is our year. Ah! And then you're like, oh, what happened there? Where's my, where's my Bible? Where's my Bible reading plan? I don't feel like going to church. My heart's grown cold. All I want to do is these other things. Your love has vanished like the morning mist. Later on in that passage, God says, in verse 6, God says, For I desire faithful love and not sacrifice the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. He makes it abundantly clear to his people that it's the love of God, the faithful love and knowledge of God that he wants, not sacrifice and burnt offerings. You know, we don't, we don't do sacrifice and burnt offerings anymore unless you're really bad at Brian. We don't, we don't go through that whole religious system, you know. I'm not buying lambs and whacking them in the garden. And like, that's all done kind of thing. So it's like, well, how does, what does that look like? It looks like a religiosity these days. It looks like us doing the right 
Christian religious things to make God approve of us. To think that somehow if we can cobble together enough of this good behavior, God's affection will come to bear on us. We'll impress him. He'll bless us. Things will go well with us. That's religion. It's what you do. The gospel is the exact opposite. It's what God has done for you and who he has made you in him. And what happens when you get a hold of the gospel, something changes. And you begin to love God and know God and you're done with the religious observances and sacrifices and burnt offerings. God, God himself says, I desire faithful love, not sacrifice. And Paul in 1 Corinthians expands on this in Testament. You'll know well this passage if you've been to a wedding. 1 Corinthians 13, if I speak human or angelic tongues but do not have love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge. And if I have all faith so that I can say, so that I can move mountains and do not have love, I am nothing. If I give away all my possessions and give over my body um, to punishment or to the flames or to torture in order to boast, uh, but do not have love, I gain nothing. Just have a look through that list there of all those things. It's like a pretty impressive list of what you would do. I mean, if you gave away all your possessions, most people would give you a round of applause for that. They think, all right, you're not, you're not playing games. But Paul says, God is saying to us, if you don't have love, you can do all of those things and it means nothing. You're basically walking around like a clanging symbol, a gong. Yeah, only parents can appreciate this. When some well-meaning person is giving your child a toy that it just is like a tambourine. Somebody once gave us a recorder as a present. You know, like a, I was like, why do you hate us so much? You give our child a recorder. Yeah, like, little Lord bless you. Yeah, here's a present. <laughs> like a recorder just magically disappeared. I don't know whatever happened to it. Uh, you know, kids, they lose things. Um, but it's just like, that's what you like. You're just, you're just making a noise. Oh, my gosh, your whole life is just a noise if you don't have love. doesn't matter how impressively you do all these outward things. If you don't have love, you are, in the words of Paul, you are nothing. You have nothing. It, it can't be more clear or more important than that and more convicting for us to have a desperate plea to say, Lord, make me a loving person. Pour your love into me so that this walk with you is a walk fueled in love and by love. So that I'm not running around just making noise, doing all of these things, stretching myself. Unimpressive to you, Father. The third thing Jesus says in this command is that our love for God is all-encompassing. He says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. With all of you. And it's not like, okay, well, let's break it down, heart, soul, mind, whatever. It basically, you see in different Gospels, sometimes it's three. When you see in Deuteronomy, where Jesus is quoting from, there's also three. There's not strength there, I think. Some of the words are interchanged. It doesn't really matter. The impression is all of you love God with all of you, with everything that you are, with everything that you are. Nothing gets left to the side. Oh, I love God with this, but I don't love him with that. And this is particularly challenging, isn't it? And I think it's a good exercise for us to sit with the Lord in the coming week and weeks to say, Lord, how do I practically love you in the different areas of my life? How do you love God with your finances? 
How do you love God with your finances? How do you love God with your time? How do you love God with your thoughts? With what you think about? Not that you just necessarily don't lust after everything, but even when you have free headspace, what are you thinking about? Are you fantasizing, escaping? How do we love God with our, with our thoughts, with our minds? How do we love God with our speech? How do we speak to each other? How do we speak to ourselves? You, know, you speak to yourself more than you speak to anyone else. Do you, do you love God in the way that you speak to yourself? You are, you are God's creation. You speak blessing and life to yourself even. Or do you just yeah, go down on yourself? How do you love God with your speech? And loving God with your character, with your actions? All of us. Jesus says nothing gets to escape it. When David prays in Psalm 86 verse 11, he says, God, that you would give me an undivided heart that I may fear your name. An undivided heart. It's a wonderful picture because this is us. Your heart just runs off in a million different directions. And it loves God with one portion. It loves this and that and that and that and that. And it's almost like timeshare kind of thing. Like every now and then, like your heart takes turns. Like, oh, okay. And now it's your turn to love God for like this week. You've got week 52. It's a great week. But like week 49, no love for God. Like you're not there. Uh, An undivided heart that God, by his grace, would pull all the fragments of our life and our um, wanderings and meanderings of our hearts together to love him. Paul paints this picture so vividly for us in Romans 7, which we've mentioned this many times but it's worth reminding ourselves that again at the start of a year because it orientates you for the battle that you will face again this year. Listen to me. It orientates you for the battle that you will face again this year. There's no a chron- a chronological sanctification. You're not a better Christian because the year clicked over to 2020, 2022. How many, how many 2020s are in there? <laughs> I'm a way ahead of you, Oaks. I'm like a millennia or whatever it is. You're the same person you were uh, in 2021, two weeks, one week ago, nine days, well, I don't even know where I am. It's not that, like a year clicks over and you're like, suddenly you're a better Christian. Like you're the same person you've brought yourself into this year. There's no massive change that's happened. What will bring about the change? I do think there's something in the grace of God about the start of a new year and orientating and opening your eyes to the war, to the war that you walk in again this year. And it's a war in your heart over desire, over what you want to do and what you end up doing. And Paul, Paul, the apostle Paul, articulates this. He says, the good I want to do, when I'm marching off to go and do it, who is right beside me? Evil is right beside me, trying to derail me from the good that I want to do. Tell me you haven't experienced that. If you haven't, you haven't been walking long enough. This is going to be a year for you. This is the battle. Guys, we're in a war. You are in a war for the affections of your heart. And a war should drive us to our knees to say, God, would you help me? Give me victory in this war that the affections of my heart run to you and not to these other things. And when I find myself under Paul walking towards an evil is right beside me, you give me grace to turn from evil and to turn to you. That our hearts just keep running after God, that this war that he talks about within us, we find victory in it again and again. That is what shapes you and grows you as a Christian, is winning the ongoing war that one day will end when Jesus comes for you or calls you. But until that day, you're at war. And it's a good idea to start the year 
eyes wide open to the war that you're in and to enlist some help and have a battle plan for victory in your own heart. The last thing that Jesus says about this command, this love for God, is that it flows to others. It flows to others. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love your neighbor as yourself. It's just easy for us to love ourselves, isn't it? It's not hard to love, to love yourself. We're just so bent in on ourselves. It's just like easy. We were born like that. Love for self is just hardwired into you. That's why Jesus doesn't really deal with it. He just more says, hey, love others as you love yourself. The love of God should bend you outwards to others. I think it's appropriate to say that the one, like I said earlier, evidence is the other. Love for God with heart, soul, mind, and strength is shown to be genuine in a love for neighbor as you love yourself. If you say, I love God with heart, soul, mind, and strength, and you don't love your neighbor, in 1 John, uh, John says, you call God a liar because you can't have the love of God in you and hate your fellow man and not love your fellow man. The love for God and the love of God in us produces a love for others. A love for others. It's not easy to love other people. I'll be the honest one in the room. You all just look at me with your judgmental over your masks uh, look there. It's fine. It's not easy to love people. Some people are hard to love. I think I'm, in one, I'm one of those people. It's hard to love people consistently and um, in a way that's truthful. You know, we can love by avoidance. We think we're loving them. We're not. It's like, you know there's something you need to talk about with a person but you're going to love them, and you're just not going to, you're going to keep the peace. You've been unloving to that person. We're all like, ooh, I'm, I'm conflict avoidant. Somebody else can deal with that. It's, it's unloving. Love, 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 until it doesn't come back enough. Oh, this person, oh, they just drain me. It's all just one way, one way. Oh, okay, so we only love so that it comes back. We don't love. You don't have no problem loving yourself when you don't give back to yourself, as it were. We, we are so messed up. In this, we need so much of God's grace to come to bear on our lives. But at the evidence of genuine love of God and from God in us is a love for other people. There's plenty of examples throughout Scripture of people who parade their good, religious, righteous deeds and say they love God and yet have no regard for other people. I want to challenge you on this, that if you've become a lover of God with heart, soul, mind, and strength, You've got no time for other people. And not just God's people, other people who need love. You need desperate help. You need an infusion and a reorientation of what the love of God actually looks like and does in us. And don't try and love your neighbor as yourself without the love of God. You'll run out of steam. You'll run out of gas. You can't do it. You can't love your neighbor as yourself without the love of God washing over us and empowering us every day. The truth is, Friends, is that we're never more like Jesus than when we're loving God wholeheartedly and loving our neighbor as ourselves. You're never more like Jesus than when you're loving God wholeheartedly with heart, soul, mind, and strength and loving others as ourselves. But it's a, problem, it's a problematic command, isn't it? Hopefully you find it problematic. It's wonderfully clear and simple. There should be no questions about this. I wonder what it means. You know, it's like Jesus speaking in parables here. There's no parables going on here. This is just straight down the middle. It's not complicated. It's just impossible. It is. 
It's impossible. And so those of us who want to follow Jesus faithfully, it should lead us again to a place where this is the place where we experience the grace and the mercy of Jesus, where we both look to him and say, thank you, God, that we have one who has loved God, heart, soul, mind, and strength, and loved his neighbor as himself. And his name is Jesus. And he's done it without ever failing in it. And so when that command is put on us, he's the one who fulfills it in our place. And so we can stand before God and say, I haven't done it, but he's done it. And I'm in him. So God, treat me as you treat him. I haven't done it, but he's done it. And because he's done it, and because he then indwells us with the Spirit, he empowers us to do it to some degree. To love God with heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love our neighbor as ourselves. Because it's not about the outward meanderings, because, and it's not about getting clear on this, like understanding, okay, I understand what I need to do. I understand what I need to do. This scribe understood what he needed to do. You look at his response to Jesus. He's like, oh, yes, Jesus, you hit the nail on the head, basically. Well done. What does Jesus say to him? He says to him, you're not far from the kingdom of God. It doesn't matter what you know, what you think is the right battle plan, what you think you should do as a Christian this year. You can have all the theology right. You can have all the requirements. You can know what the law requires of you. And you're not far from the kingdom of God. That means that you're not in the kingdom of God. It means you're still outside. It means that you don't know God yet. Whenever I read this verse, this you're not far from the kingdom of God, I'm reminded of John Wesley. You know John Wesley? He's the, basically the father of Methodism. John Wesley grew up with 16 siblings, which is a lot. Uh, in an amazing home. His mother was just, this book's been written about her. Amazing woman. Taught all of her kids the Bible. Instructed them in faith. His dad was a pastor. And by all accounts, he was an exceptional, exceptional young man. Grew up in a Christian home. Went to a Christian school. Um, went to a Christian university. Super bright guy. Ended up working as a pastor for a while. Then went as a missionary to America. Uh, and was an abysmal failure. He was the world's worst missionary. He, he converted no one and then got sick. So sick that he had to go back home. Basically bombed out on missionary life. You know, the problem was that he wasn't a Christian. He had worked as a pastor, gone as a missionary. And you can read in his autobiography, his story, he details it so beautifully that on the 24th of May, 1738, God spoke to him. He opened up the Bible. And he read the passage we just read. And his eyes fell on that verse. It says, you're not far from the kingdom of God. And somebody invited him to a meeting, a church meeting that evening. And listen to how he describes it. In the evening, I went very unwillingly. Reading Luther's preface to the epistle to the Romans. About a quarter before nine, while he was describing the change which God works in the heart through faith in Christ, I felt my heart strangely warmed. I felt I did trust in Christ, Christ alone, for salvation. And an assurance was given me that he had taken away my sins, even mine, and saved me from the law of sin and death. See, friends, it's possible to go many, many years to work as a pastor, to travel as a missionary, 
to come from a Christian home and to not know what John Wesley describes there, that your heart is strangely warmed and that you know that you know that you belong to God, that he has taken away your sin. He has made you his. And everything has changed. And when God does that for us, suddenly the love for God kicks in. And we know what it means then to love God. Imperfectly, yes, but with heart, soul, mind, and strength, and the endeavor to love our neighbor as ourselves. And as we close this morning, I want to encourage you that if you are still on the journey, or if you, as you hear those words, you can't say with full conviction, I, I know that my sins are forgiven. I, I understand exactly what you're talking about, John Wesley. You go, you're still going through all the religious motions, trying to get to God, or trying to appease Him, or make yourself approvable. That's not a word. Prove your love to Him, even. Make yourself worthy. But you abandon that and allow Him to love you and warm your heart to Him in love. Let's pray together. This is, um, this is not only the most important um, question to resolve at the start of a new year, but it's the most important question to resolve over our entire lives. Do we, do we know the living God and can we say that we love him, heart, soul, mind, and strength? That we are sure that our sins have been forgiven, that we've been reconciled to him and made his own. And if you're here this morning or you're watching online, and, and God is doing something in your heart, in your life, giving you assurance of that, inviting you into that, helping you realize that that's been missing, that you've been doing a lot of religious Christian things without the love, without the, without the sense of being loved by God and wanting to love Him wholeheartedly, that, that uh, I would encourage you to, to, to pray. Use your own words, reach out to Him as He is reaching out to you, and transforming and then tell somebody. Tell somebody about what God is doing in your life this morning. And for those of us who are followers of Jesus, our souls, as it were, on their knees, crying out to God at the start of a new year, Father, would you help us to be people who love you, heart, soul, mind, and strength. We don't have this within ourselves. It's not a natural thing. Our hearts naturally bend away from you and we need your grace and mercy to wash over us again and empower us in this walk. And we pray that you would make us a lover of other people. We pray that this would be something that's a defining thing over us this year, that we are lovers of other people. There would be such a, a sense, a tangible sense of the love of God in this place and amongst us as a people and that they would flow over to others, others as they come into this place, as they interact with us as a church, they would sense that we love other people because we have been loved so deeply and ongoingly by you. We so 
We so desperately need your help in this. And we thank you for the message of the gospel and the truth of it that reminds us of who we are in you. The Lord, our God, the Lord is one. We love you and worship you this morning, Father.